Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 3F, side-by-side, bonus material. Experimental archaeology. Working out how the ancients lived by doing their work, by building their things. It really gets you into the shoes of ancient people like nothing else. Usually, you learn a lot of practical stuff in the process. The thing that I really love about experimental archaeology, though, is that the people it connects you to in the ancient world aren't the usual procession of monks and ministers who write the books. They're the builders, the labourers, the cooks, the people you have no other connection with. Think about the great works of experimental archaeology, most of them over the last few decades. There's a a castle in France they've been building for years and years, only using 13th century technology. And it's taught us details about how to construct arches, when to decorate, things like that. There's a trireme, an ancient Greek ship, that's built to an ancient Greek design. It's taught us that steel is actually much worse than hemp rope for some purposes, just isn't stretchy enough. The ship, the trireme, by the way, is part of the modern Greek navy. Awesome. Well, all wonderful things in the hands of fools descend to farce. And experimental archaeology is a very wonderful thing indeed. So it's no surprise at all in the hands of this particular fool, it became a complete farce. Yes, that's right. This week, we're going to try out a little bit of experimental archaeology ourselves by doing some ancient Indian cooking. We're going to be raiding the ingredients lists from the ancient Indian texts, using some ancient Indian tools, utensils and cooking techniques, and cook up some dishes. It's the sort of daytime cookery show equivalent of the more serious experimental archaeology. I mean, if the daytime TV show was run by someone who wasn't a cook or a TV presenter. If it sounds like I'm trying to lower your expectations on this, well, I am. The whole thing was a great deal of fun, but it was a bit of a disaster. When I was cooking, most of the food ended up on the floor, and the rest of it mostly ended up on my shirt. And then I invited a couple of my my colleagues over to come and taste it, and we were all supremely tired. It's at that point in the work cycle. In fact, if you're not in the mood for a bunch of mates having a natter about food and life, half crazed by lack of sleep and too much just weird food, maybe this is an episode you want to skip. On the other hand, if that's just your thing, listen on. So here's the plan. First, we're going to have a go at the meal a monk would eat in Nalanda. And this stuff is really, really simple to cook, so there's not much to say on the cooking front. But it was good to have a taste, to, to see how enjoyable meal times could be for monks. Then we're going to have a look at the more substantial vegetarian stuff. And finally, we're going to get into a bit of non-veg. So grab your ancient Indian dinner clothes, take off your headdress and your shoes, come sit down at the table and join us for a bit of ancient Indian grub. So our first meal is going to be on the lighter end of things. It's going to be the daily meal of a monk. And in particular, a monk at Nalanda. That's the great monastery or university, if you like, that we talked about in a previous episode. We wake up, it's time for breakfast. And for breakfast, we get 
only one thing, rice water. Rice water is that white, starchy, bitty stuff you throw down the sink after you've soaked up rice. You can also get a bit more starch in it if you, if you throw the water after you've cooked the rice. Rice water was pretty widely used in ancient India. Across ancient India, students would wake up early in the morning to prepare rice water for their masters, whether they were Buddhist monks or not. At Nalanda, though, it's likely that the rice water prepared not by students, but by lay folk, a sort of luxury rice water preparation service for those who really want to indulge themselves. Rice water is actually pretty commonly used across the world now, too, at least across Asia. Mostly people use rice water for washing their hair and their skin. I've no idea if that actually works. Rice water is also used for sick people, and then it seems to be pretty good. In some serious medical journals, there are studies which show that if you are an infant and if you've got diarrhoea, then rice water is at least as good as those glucose salt pack things you can buy for rehydrating. Or so this study that I read said, I'm not a doctor, please, for goodness sake, do not trust my medical advice. Anyway, with the appetising thought of baby poo, let's get down to the recipe. You will need rice, water, and that's it. Step one, pour the water into the rice. Step two, wait for 30 minutes. Step three, drain. I also chilled the rice water a bit because it was pretty insipid at room temperature. Simple stuff. I invited a couple of mates around to come and taste it. Here they are introducing themselves. Yeah, that's a mug, not a meal. It's not going to get better. I suspect it'll be better than eating ceramics. <laughs> that's what you think. Okay, uh, welcome. So here is Adil and David Adil. Or Adil, or how do you say it? Uh, Adil, usually, in okay. some places and contexts. <laughs> Off to a roaring start. And Adil, what do you do? Uh, I'm a PhD student uh, in the University of Bristol studying philosophy. Okay, great. And here we also got David. Hi, David. What's your name? My name, complete name, David. David Lugetto. Okay. <laughs> David, David, what do you do? So, I'm a PhD student as well. In university, so history of art. History of art. Yeah. Favorite ancient Indian art thing, which I should know. Um, not ancient Indian, but well, I'm not very acquainted with Indian art at all. But everybody knows Taj Mahal, and I think that's a beautiful, beautiful, movie. an excellent movie. Um, David's been called here not only for his ancient Indian art knowledge, but also for his cooking proficiency. Oh, are you a cook? I don't even know. <laughs> Uh, I, I do cook. You I do? I'm a cook. Okay, what's your, what's your kind of, what's your dish? Oh, I don't know, um, probably my Thai green curry, I guess. Ah, so Or my uh, vegetarian Tom Yum soup is pretty good as well. Oh, Thai food's good. Yeah. So, um, this is your, your monk's meal. This is it. It's breakfast. Good. Um, I'll have some too, since I'm subjecting you to it. Subjecting? This, this is a, a warning. It doesn't smell what? like much, so I, um... I co-host a craft beer uh, podcast, so I immediately grabbed the mug and started nosing, and I'm like, oh wait, this is, this is not appropriate. <laughs> what does it taste like? Soft. Yeah. It tastes, it tastes of water to me. Yeah, I was going to say, it's mostly watery, um, yeah. but it's got a, a bit of a texture to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's rice water. Oh, that makes sense. It's just the water you, you wash rice in. Oh, okay. Which is like the entire breakfast for a monk. Right. Really? Yeah, there you go. So what score does rice water get? Well, after a bit of time to think and digest, here was our verdict. So the the turns out rice water just tastes of water, I think. And rice. Yeah. Well, like water and some sort of... The starch in the, in the water gave it this... I mean, the it rice was, water was it just... It was nice, yeah. It, yeah. Oh, no, it was nice. It was just, it was just like, it was just... Yeah. It just was. Well, but it, it wasn't like, like if that was my morning drink somewhere and someone was like, here's your drink, I wouldn't be like, oh, I guess so. It was like, all right, yeah. this is a but, drink. But you're not, you're not looking forward to it either. You're not waking up and thinking, oh, great, I've yeah, got, yeah. No, I've got think, rice water this morning. I think it's um, Lucky me. marketing the indifference. Yeah, I reckon okay. so. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David's, David's, uh, David's managed to get rid, of, get rid of the niceness just for a moment there. I think the key was saying indifference, so there's something negative. <laughs> David is an extremely positive and polite chap. Hard to get him to say anything even vaguely negative, so that's a big load score. Ricewater scores a tepid 2 out of 10 preceptors on the ancient Indian tastiness scale. Unless you're ill, keep it on your face, in your hair, but out of your mouth. Things can only get better from here. I took the midday meal for the monk at Nalanda from Yi Ching. He was a Chinese monk, but he lived at Nalanda a little bit after the Gupta era. In fact, we read the text where he describes the meal in the last episode. It starts out with another really simple dish. You'll need a thumb of ginger and salt. Step one, serve the ginger with the salt. Don't worry, the cooking's going to get a little bit more interesting from here on out. Here's what the guys thought. Then you had the ginger and the... the I like it. The salt. Um, I mean, I wouldn't munch on... Having said that, I could. I would probably continue munching on it if it was there, but that's just because... It's, it's still here. Oh, yeah, I know. And I, I, if, if these bottles and glasses weren't in the way, and the fact that you mentioned it made me want to take a bite. Well, it's good enough for you to have another go. Oh, yeah. I quite like it. It's super intriguing. Oh, yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised how different it was to just ginger. I thought... Because mm-hmm. I, I, I eat raw ginger sometimes just to stay awake, right? If, you, if you've got a long night's work... Water keeps you fresh. Yeah, it's pretty good. If you, if you need to stay up and stay, stay kind of mentally alert, you, you can work, do academic work all night on green tea and raw ginger, just nibble it, just have a bit of gnaw every, every few hmm. moments. Okay. That thing with like ginger and salt is a super powered version yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the spoon trick with ginger? What's the spoon trick? Uh, the um, You take the, the convex side of the spoon. Mm. Um, and you scrape it against the skin of the ginger, and the ginger skin will just come off. So you don't need to waste any of the um, oh. ginger by cutting. It'll, it literally just slides off. You're like, Good trick. Really? Yeah, it's 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 surprising how well that works. So, what score does ginger and salt get? Well, somehow, I never tried it before, so it was a bit of revelation to me and to the guys too. So Ginger and Salt scores a whopping 5 out of 10 Nullunders on the ancient Indian tastiness scale. I'll eat it again, but not too much. Let's get on to the substantial stuff. Next up, thin bean soup, rice, flavoured ghee. You will need some ancient Indian beans, split peas, lentils, that sort of thing. Rice, ghee, and some ancient Indian spices. I used cumin and safflower for this one. You make the bean soup and the rice in the usual way. Make sure to add extra water to keep that bean soup thin. 
We're eating with monks, you know. We don't want no luxury. I also added a touch of salt and then heat the ghee, add in the safflower and the cumin, keep over a low heat until the cumin's been popping for a while, serve the rice and then the bean soup and then pour the ghee on top. Simple enough. The sort of thing you could do for a few thousand monks without really too much trouble. Here's what the guys thought. For me, it was very nice. Yeah, yeah. The, the flavoured ghee gave it exactly what the thin bean soup was missing. Flavour? Yeah. But I mean, you could still taste the soup. It wasn't like it was like... Locked out. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that was, it was pretty good. Like, I mean, I think I'll probably use flavoured ghee quite a lot more. Yeah. So what does the monk's meal score? Well, I actually learned quite a few things doing it. Number one, it was almost absurdly easy to make. So anyone cooking for a large number is bound to love it. And eating-wise, well, it was okay. The use of flavoured ghee poured over rice, that's not something I've done before, I don't know why, it's pretty obvious. But I liked it an awful lot. So the meal as a whole gets a 4 out of 10 Chinese travellers on the ancient Indian tastiness scale, but the flavoured ghee gets a whopping 8 Chinese travellers out of 10. Actually, I'd probably tweak a few things. I'd use cumin and coriander seeds and not safflower next time. That's true to ancient Indian methods too. Overall, I learned that eating like a monk at Nalanda wouldn't really be a hardship. It's a nice combination of foods. Throw in the occasional sweet treat and it's quite a lot tastier than anything I ate at school dinners. Let's get on to the real food. The food of everyday Indians. Now, finding recipes for ancient Indian food is a bit of a challenge. Stories and poems mention food quite a lot. They have these long lists of food that is usually supposed to sound bounteous and exciting. But these stories and these poems were written for people who understood exactly what that food was and how it was made. To us, though, they're just lists of names we mostly don't recognise. We can almost guess what the dishes are supposed to be if you know the Sanskrit root words, but... Sanskrit root words don't set your mouth a watering. So I'm going to leave the stories and the poems to one side. Instead, the dishes that I've made were taken from medical texts. In one way, that's kind of unfortunate because it means that the food is going to be less likely to be the day-to-day food of your average Indian. But I've tried to get around that as best I can, choosing dishes from the medical texts that are clearly pretty widely used in the day-to-day life. Most of the dishes were taken from one medical text in particular, and one chapter of it. The text is called Sushruta's Collection, or something like that, Sushruta's Compendium, and it's a collection of medical advice by the great ancient Indian doctor, Sushruta. Back in ancient India, there were probably a few different medical traditions, but only one of them has survived down to the modern time, and that's Ayurvedic medicine. And it's this tradition that's based, in quite a large part, on Shashruta's work. Shashruta himself, an interesting person, widely admired today. He goes by all sorts of names and epithets. People call him the father of plastic surgery. Other people just call him the father of surgery, full stop. But read his book, and you could be forgiven for thinking that Shashruta's name should have been Shashrita. Oh dear. Uh, his name, Shashruta, means something like well-heard. Shashrita means something like well-cooked. This was my first attempt at a Sanskrit pun in the year. I say pun, really it was just two words in Sanskrit that happened to sound a little bit like one another. Anyway, let's move on and pretend that didn't happen. 
Read his book and you could be forgiven for thinking that Sushruta was a really good cook and not only a really good doctor. Because there's a whole huge chapter on food. And that chapter seems to have only a sort of tenuous connection with treatment for medical problems. Lots of it's concerned with the tastiness of various different forms of food. And most of the dishes I cooked were either from that chapter or from later commentaries on that chapter. First off, the staple food. And I decided to cook vishyanda. Vishyanda is a dish that's probably been around since the time of the Mahabharata, but it's detailed for the first time in this medical collection, in this chapter. It seems to have been a pretty common thing, because there are quite a few different recipes for it over the years, and there are even names of some special varieties of it. The version in the medical collection is made from wheat flour. You take meat flour, wheat flour, you mix it with ghee and milk and treacle, and you make a paste that's neither too thick nor too thin. There are other versions, though. In some of them, you add jaggery or treacle. In some, you use rice instead of wheat flour and you add spices. In others, you add so much sugar syrup that the whole thing becomes more like a drink. Here's the recipe that I used. You will need milk, curd, rice. I used black rice, which was a favourite in ancient North India. I couldn't get any of that shiny black rice from Magda, so I had to settle on some shiny black rice from Italy. I also used a bit of red rice, which is also considered a top-notch rice in India. Uh, I think it came from Spain originally, my one. Mixing grains, by the way, of different rices or different grains like wheat and barley, that was something that the ancients did at least sometimes, so there's no worries of anachronism about mixing the two here. So you've got milk, curd, rice, spices, and here I used the ancient Indian classics. Cumin, dried ginger, mustard, cardamom, cloves. And also a spice for fumigating the dish, I used ginger. And I also used treacle. Treacle uh, here meaning molasses made from sugarcane. You can get molasses made from all sorts of other things, but, but go for sugarcane if you want to be true to the ancient Indian style. Step one, boil the rice. Step two, in a separate pan, heat the spices in ghee. You can also use the milk and curd here. 50-50 milk to curd, reduce them to cook the spices in. Step three, add the rice, the spices and the masses all together and fry them. Now, exactly how much molasses you should add is a little bit tricky. The ancient advice just says, make it neither too thin nor too thick. It's not exactly very helpful for us. At least, not until you understand the name of the dish. Because the dish is called vishyanda, which in Sanskrit means something like trickling, oozing. So you have to add just enough molasses to make it ooze. Step four, fumigate. Put the dish on a hot plate with some fragrant spices and ghee and cover and let the smell kind of steam up and soak in. Now, what I should have been fumigating it with was probably comfort. Uh, comfort is really hard to get your hands on in this country, though. You can't get it for love nor money. So I stuck with uh, just ghee and ginger. I also managed to entirely melt the plastic cover I was using, so probably smelt a little bit of plastic too. Once you've cooked the rice, you've made it ooze, and you've fumigated it, you serve it. Here's what the guys thought. What did we have? We had the proper rice with the red rice, the black rice. Yeah. I really and the treacle. The, the, the textures of that were, were um, so the sweetness was really tasty and the textures as well just made it much more dynamic than rice normally is. Um, 
That was because of the red rice and the black rice? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the sweetness didn't hurt it. You don't normally have sweet often with rice, at least I don't. Um, no. So that, it was sort of unique that way. And then with, again, the two different types of grain, it was it was very, very tasty. Yeah. Love it? I didn't really enjoy it a lot. It's very nice. So what does Vichy underscore? Well, the ancient texts describe it as agreeable and aromatic, and also as sweet, which it is. And they also say that it's heavy and strength-giving. Well, I can't vouch for the strength-giving bit, but it really is a heavy dish. Ardell said he slept for 11 hours that night, but we liked it. I give it a 7 out of 10 sweet tooths on the ancient Indian tastiness scale. I'd cook it again any day, but then I am a sucker for rice. Next up, the vegetables proper. Now, I'm an exceedingly bad cook of veg stuff, so I'm going to make this as quick and painless as possible. First, we had sindaki vataka, that's uh, sindaki round cakes. These really crop up a bit later in the Gupta era, I think, as far as I can tell, but I was struggling for veg things that I felt competent to make. You will need radish. You can actually use other vegetables like pumpkin gourd, but radish is the one that's suggested. The usual range of spices. I used haldi, cumin, mustard. Oh, and, and ghee, of course. You can use sesame oil for all these dishes if you want to go full veg and keep the posh ancient Indian theme. Step one, boil the radishes and boil them for a long time, at least 30 minutes. This makes the whole kitchen stink, but if you boil it any less than that, it just doesn't work. By the way, I tried it with both sliced and unsliced radishes and it just didn't make any difference. Step two, drain the radishes and squeeze them dry. And you really need to get your, your hands into it and squeeze them properly. Step three, mix with the spices. Step four, form them up into little balls. Now, if you've boiled the radish for long enough, it'll be sticky and it'll form a pretty good tight ball. Step four, fry the balls in ghee until they're lightly brown on all sides. The balls don't really start to become stable and solid, so just serve them when you've got a bit of caramelisation on the edge. Here's what the guys thought about it. Um, what about the the balls of radish? The balls of radish and spices. Um, I liked it. No, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut him off there. It's my podcast, and he's just obviously lying. They were pretty disgusting. I mean, I hate radish, and this was better than just boiled radish. Frying makes everything better. But it wasn't much better than boiled radish. It scores a slightly anachronistic 2 out of 10 stink balls on the ancient Indian tastiness scale. I'm pretty sure I'll never cook this again as long as I live. We also cooked kakara, cucumber, and we cooked it in ancient Indian style. It was better than the, the weird balls, but it was so simple that I'll talk about it quickly just so I can get to the meat. You're going to need cucumber and ghee. Step one, slice the cucumber up to the thickness of five millimetres, less than that and the dish doesn't work. Step two, dry the cucumber in the oven on a very low heat until there is no moisture visible on the surface. You can use the sun too if you've got sun where you are. Step three, fry them and serve them. Here's what the guys thought. Um, yeah, I really like the cucumber. Um, it's surprisingly, it, it managed to... I was like I said, I was surprised that it was just cucumber that was dried and fried because it had seemed to have way more taste than I'm used to cucumber having. I think part of that is with the most of the liquid gone, uh, the there is saltiness in cucumber, and that definitely 
brought stuff out, but it didn't taste salty, but I have a feeling that might be what's the key factor in, in giving it more prevalent taste. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you reckon? I, I did really like that. Um, it's very simple as a idea. Yeah. But it works very nicely. So, I mean, less is more in that case. Uh, it has been very nice. Yeah, David's right. It was pretty nice stuff for vegetables. Kakara is not too kachara. Kakara is cucumber, kachara is vile in Sanskrit. Okay, should really stop trying for the Sanskrit puns. So, what does cucumber fried score? Well, I'm going to give it a whopping 6 out of 10 vials on the ancient Indian tastiness scale. But we'd best move quickly on to the non-veg dishes. Have you ever heard the tale of the Chinese encyclopedia that divides animals up into stray dogs and fabulous animals and innumerable animals and embalmed animals and the animals belonging to the emperor? It's supposed to be an example of how different cultures can divide things up differently. Bad news, I'm afraid. The encyclopedia didn't exist. It was just made up. And the guy who made it up, though, he could have done better if only he'd read a bit more ancient Indian medicine. Because the medical collection we're taking these recipes from divides animals up in also a pretty unusual way. It divides them up into aquatic animals, marshy animals, those that dwell in villages, those that are carnivorous, those with a single hoof, and those that live in jungles or high ground. Now today we're interested in the last group in particular. They're called the jungler. They're the guys who live up on the high ground or in the jungles. And we're looking at one particular subdivision of the jungler, the large need subdivision. Those include the red deer and a bunch of other deer too. And these deer have, and I quote, a sweet astringent taste, they're light, they're keen, and they're pleasant to eat. They're also laxative and diuretic apparently, but let's skip over that. Anyway, I got my hands on some red deer meat and I got cooking. And the first thing that I cooked was vasavara. Vasavara's a really odd dish. It's not even really a dish on its own. It's, it's sometimes translated as mincemeat. It's a sort of stuffing, usually. Stuffing in cakes and in other dishes. And to give you some idea of it, here's the recipe. You're going to need boneless meat, ghee, spices, especially ginger and black pepper, but I also used uh, coriander seeds. I would have used long pepper if I had any. Step one. Boil the meat. Following hints in various ancient Indian texts, I did this in a sealed container with just enough water so the meat was fully cooked when the water dried up. Sort of semi-steaming it. Step two, pound the meat in a pestle and mortar, or on a stone slab. I found that I needed to chop the meat up with a knife to make this a bit easier, but it did eventually pound into dust. Step three, add spices. And step four, cook the whole thing again in ghee. Now, what you get out of that process is not really anything like mincemeat. Not the sort of mincemeat you get from a real grinder. In a real grinder, the cells are broken down in a different way than they are in a pestle and mortar, and, and the taste is different, and most importantly, the texture is much different. The texture from the pestle and mortar version is a lot drier. David and I tried it. Adil Adil is a vegetarian, so he didn't have any. And David was far too polite uh, to say it, but it really wasn't very nice. Maybe I was making it wrong, because ancient Indians seemed to eat quite a lot of this stuff. It seems to be one of the main ways they prepared meat. 
Sometimes people would mix it with mugda paste and then stuff it into cakes. Apparently, it was the sort of food that hung around in the stomach undigested for a bit. It was also used a lot in medical texts. Vesuvara is used in treating a number of specific diseases, and in particular in gynaecology. So if a woman suffered a prolapse, it was manually fixed and then packed with Vesuvara and sealed. Yeah. A reason to be glad that you aren't an ancient Indian woman if you didn't already have one. So what does Vesuvara score? Well, the texts describe it as heavy and flesh-building, just like our rice dish. I liked it a little bit, but only because I was really trying. It scores a mediocre 4 out of 10 stuffings on the ancient Indian tasting scale. Another failure. Now for our final dish. I've called it pishta, but it's really a mix between pishta and pratapta. Pishta means something like pastry. A pishta was, in terms of meat, was meat that's pasted and then, and then made into balls or something like that. Pratapta means great heat. And pratapta meat was meat that was cooked over hot charcoal. Now, the medical text that we're looking at has quite a detailed account of a dish that combines the two. Here it is. You're going to need some venison or other tasty meat. I read in one of the texts that marshy meat was the most appropriate, but since I hate marshy meat, I managed to conveniently forget where I read it. So we're sticking with venison. Pomegranate juice, curds, and then spices robust enough to go with pomegranate and venison. So I got cumin, safflower, mustard, cloves, pepper, asafoetida. Hing. Step one, fry the meat in the ghee. Step two, paste the meat. Step three, mix the meat with spices. And then step four, form it into little balls. Cook those over charcoal in a pan. And as it's cooking, you add the pomegranate juice and the dahi and the, the, the curd and you cover it. And you wait until the dahi is reduced to a reasonably thick sauce, and then you serve it. Sounds pretty simple. It is pretty simple. Here's what the guys thought. It smells very tasty. Let's see. Yeah, even from here. Yeah. Actually, it's not bad. Very, very nice. It's slightly acidic, but it's, it's good. Contrast okay with the, with the meat. Yeah. Mm. It smells good. It's very nice. It's um, the, the, the combination of pomegranate and venison is actually really good. I'm not sure if it would be quite as good if it was like uh, goat or something like that. Mm. So what does our picture score? Well, I really like this one. Actually, so did David. It scores 9 out of 10 junglies on the ancient Indian tastiness scale. I'd definitely have it again. I'll tweak a few things, mind you. Uh, more spices than I put in, and maybe a fair amount of chilli. Chilli... A definite ancient Indian no-no. So overall, how was the ancient Indian food? Expectations were low. Ancient Indian food from Western Europe is, in my experience, absolutely foul. You know, the thing about Roman food with their, their fish sauce and their horrible fish dishes and honey dessert. Or English food in the ancient world is even worse. You ever see one of those people who eat cars for a living on TV? Well, trying to digest ancient English flatbread is what those people must do when cars become not enough of a challenge. It's horrible. So if you'd invited me to an evening of ancient Indian food, well, I'd go, but I'd been making sure that I had something to wash my mouth out with. And I always thought as a result that ancient food itself 
was bad everywhere. And it must be because taste changes a lot over time. But this ancient Indian food, at least most of it, was really quite nice. None of it was really horrible. I was making a bit of a fuss earlier. The radishes maybe weren't great, but then I hate radish. All of it I could eat regularly. Some of it I look forward to quite a lot. And in my book, that makes ancient Indian food a great success. And at the end, the other guys pretty much agreed. All of us were fully fed up to the nines. And after all these failed puns, probably you're fed up too. So let's put the dishes in the corner, wash out our mouths with betel leaves and citrus rind, and settle back to watch the sun go down. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought we'd read from that medical manual we take the recipes from, Sushruta Samhita, the Sushruta's compendium or collection. Here he is with his recommendations for what you should do after dinner. It goes like this. Now we shall discourse on drinks and potions which are found to be beneficial when taken after a certain kind of food. Anupanas. Certain people oppressed with an acid taste naturally long for sweets, while others in full satiety of sweet articles have a relish for acid things. Hence something acid is good for the eater of sweets, and sweets are good for men who have partaken of an acid food. Cold water and warm water, wine, spirits, the soup of mudga paste, pulse, uh, etc. The juice of acid fruits, sour paddy gruel, milk and essence of meat are generally used as drinks after a full meal. Of these, that alone which provide beneficial to a person should be given him in adequate quantity. The intelligent physician should determine the kind of after drink required in each case, after taking into consideration the nature of the disease under treatment, the season of the year and the properties of the solid or liquid substances that enter in the composition of the diet. Of all kinds of after potions, clear heavenly water, kept in a pure vessel, should be deemed the best, inasmuch as water contributes in every way to the welfare of a person throughout his life, and all the six different tastes are inherent in that heavenly fluid. Briefly, we have stated the rule to be observed in respect of after potions. Now we shall dilate upon their specific properties. Hot water should be taken after any oily or lardaceous substance other than those known as the oils of the Balatica and the Talvarica. Certain authorities hold that the soup of the Mudga Pulse and sour rice gruel should be respectively taken in summer and winter, after having taken a large quantity of oil in the course of a meal. Cold water should be taken after cakes and honey, as well as after curd, porridge, and also in cases of poisoning, derangements due to the effects of wine. According to several authorities, tepid water should be taken after any kind of cake. And that's it for this episode. We end with an ancient Indian telling us to drink more water, something we hear quite a lot of today too. Talking of drinks, we actually made an ancient Indian drink from one of the medical manuals. It was pretty complicated. It was also pretty nice. Maybe not quite worth the effort. Didn't make it to this episode, maybe it will make it to another episode. It's been a very scattershot, weird episode, but I hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you have been enjoying these episodes, please consider donating to my wife's charity, 
the Snail's Hittle Memorial Fund. The details are in the description. Next week, we're going to be looking at some farming, where all these ingredients come from. Until then, have a great week. Take care.